Let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel, chapter 11. We're continuing this journey, studying the life and the ministry of Jesus, doing our best to keep it in chronological order, you know. And uh, we find ourselves, you know, someone said, well, what about Christmas messages towards the Christmas? Well, maybe I'll throw one at you next week. Pray for me. <laughs> it's so hard for me to just to get off sync a little bit, but... Uh, we'll see what next week beholds, right? Give us this day our daily bread. Mark's Gospel, chapter 11. I'm going to read verses uh, 12 to 14. And then we're going to fast forward to 19, verse 19, uh, down to verse 26. It says, On the morrow, when they had come from Bethany... He was hungry, and seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if happily he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus said, or Jesus answered, and he said unto it, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. His disciples heard it. Now verse 19. And when the evening was come, he went out of the city. And in the morning, as they passed by, he, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursed is withered away. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say to you, Whatsoever or whosoever shall say to this mountain, Be thou removed and be cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he say, saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe that, and that you receive them and you shall have them. And when you stand praying, forgive if you ought against any, if you have ought against any. For your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, Forgive your trespasses. In other words, if you want to experience God's forgiveness, how important it is that we learn how to forgive one another. It's not even going to be in the message today. I just thought I threw that out as a bone. Um, but isn't it true how hard it is to experience God's forgiveness when we allow our hearts to become embittered or, or unforgiving? Even coming into this season... We talk about Christmas all so much. And my prayer is, Lord, I don't, no matter what people might say or do or come against me or whatever, let me have the same kind of heart that you have. A heart that just can look at a situation and say, you know, it's all good. And I forgive you. It doesn't matter. And have God fill us with his love and to be able to say we love them as well. But all that being said has nothing to do with our Bible study this morning. <laughs> In this passage, 
We have some. Oh, let's stand. Let's pray over the text. Bible in hand. I almost forgot. Boy, that would have been disastrous. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the desire, again, that you placed in our hearts to be Bereans, to be disciples, learners, to really know and understand what your scriptures have to say to us individually. I get it, Lord, as a son or a daughter, but collectively as a church body. So we pray, Father, for your Holy Spirit just to come upon us and anoint us to receive your word today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said together, amen and amen. Thank you. It's an odd text, isn't it? You know, not to jump ahead in my notes here because I want to really cover everything that I've seen in this text. Uh, but this is kind of a strange thing, you know, here Jesus, he's hungry, he comes up to a fig tree, he thinks he's going to see something on it, he's going to eat it, doesn't eat it, he curses the darn thing. And then as the disciples come back from Jerusalem and then heads back from Bethany, they see, and of course it would be good old Peter that would see something like that. <laughs> All the other guys are oblivious, but it's Peter who would say, hey Lord, look at the tree you cursed, you know. And, of course, it's uh, something that does, it is miraculous. It, it withered from the roots on up. It was completely withered away. But there's a message in this. You know, Jesus just didn't go around thinking, okay, I'm kind of bummed out. I'm a little mad at something. I'm just going to curse it and it's going to die. You know, that's not, just not Jesus, you know. So everything Jesus had done and taught was really for the, the benefit of the disciples and the benefit for us as well, right, guys? So there is a message in this, and um, in this passage, we have something that represents, well, claims to represent God, but it doesn't. In fact, uh, as I had just said, it displeases him. He curses it, he condemns it, he dooms it to die. And then the cursing of the tree, uh, to just, um, just so we keep the context of it, it, it it's following um, that triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And that's how far, by the way, we are in, in our timeline. Jesus is making his way down through the Kidron Valley. And he now is um, hearing Hosanna. He's hearing the praises of the people. You know, so that's that time where we are in his life. And, um, but it's, it's, and I think it's important to really know that, to have the context. I have such a deep conviction about that. Uh, by the way, when we're studying or teaching the Word of God, you, you always have to establish your teaching with the context of the Scripture, or we have that possibility of misrepresenting Him or misrepresenting um, the Scriptures. And so whenever I do something that has a topical feel to it, I make sure that I know what's leading into it and the exit of it to make sure I don't misrepresent what God has to say to us. That is so important, and I keep telling my colleagues that when they're teaching scriptures or young Bible teachers, keep with the context. Yeah, but it's such a dynamic message. It might be dynamic, and it just might blow up in your face. You need to stop that. Keep the context. Don't mis misrepresent what God has to say to his people. Amen, guys? So... Anyway, uh, be that as it, as it may, 
uh, it's important for us to understand the context. Um, on that Sunday prior to the crucifixion, we know Jesus is coming in on that beautiful spring day. He's, he's coming up over the Mount of Olives, if you're familiar with your maps. He's coming from the area of Bethany down into the Kidred Valley. You can still see the, these places today. He starts to make his ascent up into Jerusalem and all the huge multitudes are around him. They're laying down their robes. They're casting down the palm branches. They are singing songs that to them are songs of ascent or songs that are jubilant. But in the ears of the Pharisees or the system, um, this isn't good. Uh, they, uh, again, if you want to, as a cross-reference, go to, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Let's read a few passages from there. Luke 19, starting with verse 41. Again, it's important that when you are reading certain things in, in the Gospels, to remember that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic Gospels. They have these parallel things going on. So what Mark might let leave out, Matthew might include something else so you get a full picture. Um, you can gravitate to John once in a while, but you remember the Gospel of John was primarily written to the church. So it's going to have a different taste or a different flavor. But there in Luke 19, verse 41, it says that as he was drawing near, he, uh, he saw the city, he weeps over it, saying, Oh, if you had known, even you, especially in this, notice the wording there, in your day, this is for Jerusalem, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you. And close you in on every side. Level you, your children with you, to the ground. They will not leave in you one stone upon another. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. He comes up over that mount, that embankment. He then starts to look at Jerusalem. And the word tells us that he begins to sob. And that word to weep there in our text literally means to convulse. His body is shaking. I don't know if you've ever experienced that kind of an emotion, you know, where you don't just want to blurt it out, you know, but no, people know you're weeping, but they know it's something deeper than weeping. It's something where you're just barely hanging on to that emotion and your body's just jerking. Ever been there, gang? I'm sure I have. You've been there, you know. This is the, the experience that Jesus is going through. You know, sometimes we miss the humanity of the Lord. Sometimes we just think of our Lord as the Son of God and God in the flesh, the victorious King who sits on the right. Yet when He was on the earth, He was fully man, just like you and I. And there were things that just broke His heart. And this is one of those days where people were singing and they were jubilant and they were just singing with all their hearts, Hosanna, King, you know, the King is coming, save us now. You know, that was the only time, by the way, where Jesus would allow them to praise him as a king or as even as the Messiah. It was the only time he allowed them to do it. Every other time he would say, shh, it's not time yet. But this was the appointed time for the father to reveal his son. You know, again, it tells us the reason why he is convulsing so, so deeply inside emotionally. It's because in verse 44, the latter part of it is because you just didn't know the time of your visitation. What does all that mean? 
Now, for most of you that maybe you've walked with the Lord, you've kind of done this study, uh, so this will be a refresher for you. But maybe you haven't. Maybe you're wondering, what does that mean, the day of your visitation? See, you know, he's coming into Jerusalem. There's nothing but celebration And then he sees Jerusalem, he breaks down, and the reason he breaks down is Jesus understands that they, that there's the the greatest fulfillment of prophecy is taking place right before their eyes. And he wants them to know it. He wants them to get it. It, it's equivalent to you and I as we see someone, you know, we, we might have invited them out to church and, you know, the gospel message is going out that Jesus died and was buried and was raised. And if you just simply put your church and you just you hear that message, it resonates in your heart. But it's almost you look at that person and they're just clueless. I just did a funeral just yesterday, you know, just trying to describe what heaven is like for our brother Bob Donahue. And how he just is just basking in the presence of God. And as I was looking at his family and some of his loved ones, I could tell they just weren't getting it. And I wasn't. I don't normally go to the receptions afterwards. You know the the little gatherings. I I kind of avoid them. It's just it's just not my thing. I guess I don't know. But my wife and I we prayed about it in the parking lot. And we said we need to go to this thing. And so we went, and we went to the where they were holding. It was a little uncomfortable for Irma and I, but all of a sudden the table just started to ask questions, especially um, some of uh, his relatives, uh, dear Anna, has just wanted to know more about Christianity. But for that time, though, I could just see they weren't getting it. And that was breaking my heart. So I can't imagine what it was like for the Lord. One of the greatest prophecies ever to be fulfilled right before their very eyes. A prophecy for them. Knowing that just in a short span of time, this guy by the name of Titus Aspasian will come in and besiege the city of Jerusalem. And just totally annihilate the Jesus or the Jewish people in that, in that, in that city. And when they would finally come in, every stone would be toppled over. And Jesus weeps because they just didn't understand this was the time that was appointed just for you. Do you know the Bible says it's appointed a time unto you, a time? God, God works on a timetable. And maybe there's someone here today that this is your appointed time to hear the gospel, to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, to stop playing games, to stop playing church. To really surrender your life and make him your Lord and Savior. It might be your day. Jesus was referring there to Daniel chapter 9 verse 25. And uh, you know what I, I think I'm going to start to do? And you can hold me to it. You know, if I had you turn to every cross reference, we would be here all day studying just one so I'm going to try to get all my cross-reference to the media people where they can just flash the cross-reference up there. Would that be all right if you guys saw that? I'm not getting millennial on you. I'm not going to start having smoke going across the, the, the stage. And can I, can I say something, though? Maybe I shouldn't. People watch this online. No, no, I, you know, listen, I got saved during the Jesus people movement. We all had long hair and we came to church in bare feet and we played bongos and sung Kumbaya thinking they were hymns. 
you know. And I get that there's different things, but I was just at a church service, and they had that. They had the, the light thing going on, you know. And then I'm thinking, is the place on fire? Because there was smoke up there. And, and I'm real critical. My wife's worship. My wife can worship better. You know, she's just, and I'm like, all right, what's next? What are they going to pop out on me next, you know? And, uh, but I can say this. In Calvary Chapel at Ch- Chattanooga, that pastor was solid, man. He brought forth the word of God like nobody's business. And he's in Daniel. And I'm in Daniel. And, and who else is Damien Kyle's in Daniel? Joe's going to be in Daniel. This is a Daniel season. So, um, but anyway, so don't be like me. Don't weigh it all out and, and just make sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready to grab Berm and run out the door with him. <laughs> you know, it's, but um, you know, this, the teaching was solid, man, solid. And it, those dear people, and 90% of them were just young people. Man, my heart rejoiced. And uh, to see them being taught the word of God. Now, so I can't do the flashing lights and the, you know, whatever. But anyway, you know, I'm uh, getting old. And so. <laughs> Amen. Don't say that. I'm not that old. <laughs> Forgive me if I, never mind. Come on, Harry. Stay with the text. Daniel in chapter 9. There's that prophecy. And I'll read it to you unless you're quick. Turner in pages. Uh, it says in verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and then 62 weeks. I'll explain that in a second. And the street shall be built again in the walls, even in troublesome times. This is a prophecy given to Daniel in Babylonian captivity. Um, and, and this is what's happening. You know, Daniel's praying, or praying with all of his heart. He knows the time is coming to the end of their captivity. And he just wants to know about these visions and dreams and such. And so Gabriel was, was sent. Now he was kind of um, distracted a little bit by some other demonic spirit. We won't go into that. But he finally gets there and he goes, Man, I've been here to send, uh, you know, send to you to, to help you understand uh, what's what's going down with the nation of, of Israel. And so in that verse, it just talks about a decree or a command to go, to rebuild um, and to restore Jerusalem and the walls around Jerusalem. And so what that prophecy says, that from the time that this command or this decree goes out, there will be these seven-year periods. And that means seven seven-year periods. They call them in the Hebrew a heptad. It's not seven years, as you and I think, but seven seven-year periods, along with sixty-two more seven-year periods. Well, if you if you add those up, you come up to four hundred and eighty-three years. Now, because they were in Babylonian captivity, everyone still with me? Well, they go by a three hundred and sixty-day calendar. So if we were to take those seven, seven years plus the 62, making it 69 year, seven year periods, if you add all those together, the 483 years and times it by 360 day um, Babylonian calendar month days, you come up with 173,880 days. Now you're going, oh, can you repeat that again? No, I'm not. Um, Get the tape. Well, there is no more tapes. Get the CDs. I don't think there's CDs anymore. 
What do you guys get? Oh, go online, right? Go online. Thank you. Go on. You know, I miss my rotary phone. I saw one at my daughter-in-law's house just the other day. I wanted to steal it. Yeah, it's not hooked up, but I still want it. Why? Do you remember when we were kids, we would let the dial go back so our parents wouldn't hear them, you know? If you wanted long, uh, ex- long day, de- you just put an extension cord on it and you just pulled it to the other room anyway. I don't know. I says, I miss my phone. But anyway. So basically, from the decree that went out to go and rebuild and restore Jerusalem, we have the 173,880 days. Now, when, when was that decree given? Well, then we go to Nehemiah chapter 2, and there was this king by the name of Artaxerxes. Well, Artaxerxes, he sees Nehemiah, and he's all bummed out. He's walking around all bummed out and depressed. So, so Art, we'll call him Artaxerxes, Art, and so Art said, hey, Nebi, what's wrong with you? And he goes, hey, listen, I'm, I'm bummed out. My home back in Jerusalem, it's just been toppled over. The walls are in shambles. And so Artaxerxes says, well, why don't you go back and, and, and go ahead and rebuild it? And that's where Ezra and all these other minor prophets come into play. But that, was, that happened March 4th, 445 B.C. It's amazing. No wonder the critics have such a hard time with the book of Daniel because how precise and accurate the, the prophecies are as it relates to the nation of Israel and the coming of the prince. Namely, our prince, Jesus, and he will be cut off so much in that. And, and I'm covering that on Wednesday, by the way, if you want to join us. Um, but, but there in Nehemiah, the decree went out. You could count the 173,880 uh, days, 173, days. When you do that, you come right up to April 6th, 32 AD. To the very day Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if thou had only known that this was thy day. And because they missed the prophecy, he broke, he convulsed, he began to shake. Now, I know Jesus now is in his glorified body, but sometimes I wonder. It's just me. You're welcome to your opinions. But what emotions does God or Jesus have now when you and I miss These appointed prophecies today where we don't study them. We we don't give heed to them. We live like, you know, that these prophecies about his return, well, that won't happen in my lifetime. We're raising kids today that are closer to the Lord's return than ever. I don't know. I don't know. But as Jesus made his way into that day, that triumphant day, and, and, and God had given the nation that very day to receive him as their Messiah. And so, and so again, the common people continued to worship him. It's obvious in our text. But it was the religious people who really raised an objection. Now, you might say, well, who are the religious people of the day? Well, okay, we'll use words like Pharisees and Sadducees and and scribes and Sanhedrins. And right away, the the New Testament student will think very negative of those, those titles. Pharisees, I'm not a Pharisee. Sadducees, I'm not a Sadducee. And we'll do things like that. But in their day, they that was the system. That was Israel. That, that's who... 
Paul the Apostle or Saul the Pharisee was, and they were highly admired and greatly esteemed. That was the religious body of Israel. When you talked about Israel, you thought about these men. You thought about the 70 members of the Sanhedrin. If they're wrong, then Israel's wrong in their minds. And all of a sudden, as Jesus is coming up over that crest, and he starts to make his way down into the Kindred Valley, and they're singing Hosanna, it is the Pharisees in Luke 19.39 where it says, Hey, teacher, rebuke these people. Stop them from doing that. Don't you get it? Man, where their, their system was wrong, man. Their religion was wrong. Their authority was wrong. Their teachers were wrong. Their worship was wrong. Everything to that, that very day, everything about Judaism, the way they knew it, was wrong. Even the way they were worshiping. Because they thought this king that was coming, riding on this barrel, was going to remove the Roman yoke. They had no idea it was there to remove the yoke of sin and bondage. And the same thing happens today. You look at Christianum today and you wonder, is it right or is it wrong? Why, why is there this, this, this dogma today where people just want to alleviate the message of the cross? Let's get rid of the message of sin. Let's get rid of the message of this blood thing. Come on. And you're saying, oh, Harry, I even have it. Well, you've been sheltered here. And as long as I'm your pastor, you're always going to hear the death, burial, the resurrection, and the soon coming king. But not out there anymore. They're opening their doors to whatever and whomever if they can just fill the seat. Just need to fill the seat and take the offering so we can keep the doors open. It's wrong. And it's happening. And it's happening at a rapid rate and it's growing. This whole time where he's, the Pharisees were saying, rebuke your disciples. Jesus responds to them in verse 40 of Luke 19. Where he says to them, look, if they, if they stop praising me, the very rocks on the ground will praise, praise me. Here the religious leaders who, who are claiming to represent God and represent the God of the Bible are literally trying, well, they're planning to crucify the Son of God. The very guy, the very Messiah that was fulfilling that very prophecy that very day in their minds and hearts, they're thinking, how can we get rid of him, get rid of his message, get rid of everything this man is about? Let's just kill this guy. And if you can understand it and accepting, they're still trying to kill the message of the cross. And they're still trying to kill the message of death, burial, and resurrection, even today. Such a disconnection, I think you would agree with me, between the religious system and what God is all about. There was such a disconnection. But it sets the whole stage now. That's our context. That sets the whole stage for the cursing of the tree. See why it's important to keep the context? If we just read that 
Jesus walked up the tree and he was hungry and got bummed out and he cursed the thing, we'd miss the whole point. It says the next day, back in Mark 11, he comes to comes out of Bethany and he was hungry. Again, this is the day after that triumphal entry. He comes up to this tree, he curses it the next day, and early in the morning as he's making his way back to Bethany, again, and by, and by the way, he never really stayed in Jerusalem, that, that kind of that final week. He n- never did. Every time he'd venture into Jerusalem, it was either uh, to present himself or to teach, or, or, but he would always go back to his friends in Bethany. It was a very short distance. It's east side of Jerusalem, I believe. And you can still visit the town there. I mean, of course, it doesn't look like Bethany in the ancient days, but you can still go there. But that Jesus loved hanging out with his friends during his final week. Mary and Martha and Lazarus and those probably of the household there. But he loved going there. But he made his, the next way, again, verse 13, as he's making his way to Jerusalem, he sees this tree far off having leaves and he and he went to see if perhaps if he would find something on it and when he came to it he found nothing but leaves and for it was not the season now don't be um um don't don't be confused Uh, a fig tree in my study of figology (laughs) a fig tree will really hold on to its fruit for a long time it's not uncommon actually even to go through the off season and still have ripe fruit there that's just hanging on uh, also what i've learned is it is still a delight if to get a raw fig in the ancient day just to nourish on something to chew on something so they would actually pull down unripe it wasn't the season for harvesting as is the idea there but jesus was still expecting to see fruit on that tree when he got to it so in verse 14 it says in response, Jesus said, let no one eat from our fruit from you uh, ever again. And uh, the disciples heard that. And, and, and again, I, I, I love the fact that Jesus is going to use this as an object lesson. Um, verse 20, then we've dropped down to verse 20. Now in the morning as they passed by the fig tree, they passed by the fig tree. It had dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Hey, Rabbi, look! The fig tree which you cursed has withered away. Now, this isn't something that happened naturally. This, of course, it's very obvious. And it's, it's something that happened supernaturally. That there was just the drying up of this, of this tree. Um, and there's a meaning behind it. Throughout the Old Testament... Um, the nation of Israel, one of its national symbols is a fig tree. Um, so are grapes. In fact, if you were to go to Israel and go to some of the old ancient ruins, and especially around Capernaum, you can still see on some of the columns where you would see uh, figs or clusters of grapes and just the national emblems. Uh, ours is the eagle for the United States. Well, the fig tree was for... Um, the nation of Israel. Now, we get that through some of the um, major and minor prophets. Isaiah speaks of Israel as, an, as a fig tree. We ha- also have in Joel, Hosea, Michael, and so, some other minor prophets all speak 
of, um, of, G- of Israel being the fig tree. So, so all the leaves and no fruit was a perfect picture of Israel in Jesus' day under the influence of these religious leaders. The one who would say, hey, stop them from worshiping you. The Pharisees, Sadducees, uh, um, the scribes, and, and also the Sanhedrin in Jesus' day. Um, so this is a perfect picture. And what it is, you look, they look good on the outside. It looks like they have all kinds of leaves. But when you really get come close to it and you really want something from it, there's nothing to have. There's nothing to have. An outward appearance of spiritual life, but when God looks at it, it lacks its fruit. Now again, just trying to make application for us, collectively, collectively as a church, we could be a church that looks like, look at that tree, look at the leaves. Man, I'm going to go there, I'm going to get fed. But when people come in, they walk out still hungry and still malnourished. And, or is it a church? Is it a, a body of believers? When you get there, their, their worship is, is solid. They get there, the teaching of the word, you're being fed and you walk out and you're going, man, that was a feast, you know. The love was real, the worship was solid, you know, and you walk away and because you, it was fruitful. See, that's the way a church should be. That's the way God wanted the nation of Israel. And so Jesus, using this fig tree as an, as an example, he goes to it. It's full of leaves, but there's nothing other than the religious leaders in their system saying, hey, stop them from singing that you were going to crucify you. I also would like to think of it um, not just collectively as a church body, but even in my own personal life. As if somebody is gravitating to me because of, I don't know, for whatever reason, when they do, will I be one that's filled with the fruit of the Spirit? Something that someone can just partake of with me. And then when they leave your company, and you, yeah, wasn't it just great to hang out with that guy? I mean, he had a Bible verse for everything. He knew all the songs, you know. He just talked about Jesus all the time. It wasn't like Eeyoreisms, you know. Glad to get away from that guy. Oh my goodness, talking about a one, one branch tree with no leaves. Man, you know. And Jesus has asked us to be fruitful, hasn't he? To be full of God's fruit. That when people, no matter heathen or saved, that they'll be able to partake from you as a Christian. Now, that's what he wanted from, from Israel. And you know what? The message of this miracle is, is this, gang. I, I believe that Jesus strongly rejects any, and I'll use religious system, that claims to re- represent him or represents God the Father, he strongly rejects it when it doesn't produce any kind of, of fruit. All it has is leaves. And uh, the cursing um, of, of this tree, I think what Jesus is trying to say here is that I'm not going to allow you to fool anybody any, or anyone um, anymore. You're done. And you're just going to be, you know, recognized as a, as just withered up from the very ground onward. Oh, well, how how does that apply today? And I'm not trying to be critical. I know. Do you know at one time the Methodist movement was one of the strongest evangelical movement 
where revivals had sprung out of. And if you look at the Methodist church today, they're struggling over sinful issues, whether it's right or wrong. And some of you, I know you personally, have come from a Methodist background. My brother was a priest in the Episcopal Church. And before he died, he just told me how his heart was so broken, how the Episcopal movement. We're, we're talking about Whitfield. We're, you know, George Whitfield, one of the greatest evangelists, was an Episcopal priest. And they have, the, those movements have dried up, have withered away, and they no longer, they might produce some leaves, but there's nothing to take of them anymore. And I pray for Calvary Chapel that we don't become that. That we, we, will we wither from the ground, from the root on up? Will we? Will Calvary Chapel movement just wither up and dry away and be recognized as maybe a, a revival that happened in the 60s? But don't go to a Calvary Chapel anymore. They don't even teach the word. Could it happen? Well, you know what I have to say? Jesus, come quickly. <laughs> Get us out of here. I don't want to see the death of that. Anyway, we're Jesus followers, not Calvary Chapel followers. So the question is, and I'm going to try to wrap this up, is how, you know, how did, Judy, how did Judaism get to that point, you know? And uh, how did it get to this, this place, given its resources, you know, the prophets, the word, the, Mo, the law of Moses, the Levitical law, everything that Israel had, you know. How did it end up being a religion that had leaves but had no fruit? And, uh, and the reason why, again, I want us to know this is so we don't end up collectively as a church body and also individually as a son or daughter of God. Um, listen, before I go any further, though, I, I want to say this, that um, if we're honest and if we're real, you know, um, we can find a little bit of all the Pharisee and Sadducee and, and scribes and Andrew. We can find a little bit of those things in our lives. We all can find that Pharisaic mentality where we say one thing and but we know there's something different. We're hypocrites and we try to be legalistic. That's a Pharisee. Or a Sadducee where we become very liberal. We don't know if we believe the Bible or not. We pick and choose what we want to believe in. You know, we don't know if angels are really real. or We can be very Sadducitic and be very sad, you see. But, um, and we can be scribes thinking we're all here that we... We can memorize verses, but our heart's so far from him. See, we, why? Because we all have the same spiritual DNA. We have a little bit of grandmom and grandpa, Adam and Eve in us. We really do. And we have to make sure we keep those things in check. Right? Why? So we can bear forth fruit and much fruit. So when I go through these things of how Israel got the way or, or how they have backslid away from their relationship I want us all to be careful and if there's something in our lives that needs to be repented of then we should do that but th this kind of a religious system emphasizes you know um, where it puts its focus on people 
rather than upon God. That the people become more important rather than a personal relationship with God. You know, maybe to, to bring it home a little bit, it's maybe equivalent of someone just talking about Calvary Chapel all the time. Calvary Chapel, South Jersey. Calvary Chapel, South Jersey. You know, or even the Calvary Chapel movement. And like I said, I've been guilty that, of that so many, so many times where I'd have to stop myself. Well, wait a minute. Brooklyn Tabernacle is a great church. Chicago Tabernacle is a beautiful church. There's some assemblies of God that are right on and teaching the word. And so it isn't people or places or things. It's about a, a personal relationship with Christ. But when we emphasize a person, we know we're heading in a bad direction. And we might have leaves, but man, our fruit are starting to fall off. And this kind of a religious system develops traditions. You know, they're bogged down with traditions. Their traditions become more important than even the gospel. I remember back in the Calvary movement, you know, that, that Chuck used to share this story about how they just carved or carpeted the, the uh, Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. They just carpeted the whole place. And so one of the elders thought it was important that they would put up a sign saying no bare feet allowed. And you're talking about mid-60s. No kids wore shoes back then. So they were just basically saying don't let the kids in. And Chuck saw the sign and took the sign and went into an elders meeting. Said, let's take out the carpets before we refuse the kids' entrance. And he made a point. But traditions can become, it can bog you down. Jesus dealt on this in Mark 17. I'll just read it to you. He answered, he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites as it is written, this people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine and the commandments of men, for laying aside the commandments of God, laying aside the word of God. You hold on to the traditions of men, washing pitchers and cups and other such things as you do. More, it was more important, their pitchers and their cups and their rituals and the traditions. He said to them, all well, all too well, you reject the commandments of God, the word of God, that you may keep your traditions. And I think when a church or any kind of religious system gravitates to traditions and we want to hold on to this tradition more than holding on to the souls of men, this is where we begin to see the fruits begin to just fall off and the tree begin to wither and die. The third kind of religious system, the third, this kind of religious system emphasizing almost a neglecting of the word or learning of the whole counsel of God's word. They begin to put the Bible aside. And, um, and this is what broke Jesus' heart here. He said, you know, if you had only known, they should have known that that was their hour. They had Daniel. They had the prophecies of Daniel. You know, they, they spiritualized it. They had Isaiah 53, but they spiritualized that. Isaiah, I was wounded, I was bruised, and for your peace I was chastised. They had all those. And yet they, wanted to, they didn't want to think about a suffering Messiah. So they just say, let's spiritualize this. And people are doing that today. Neglecting the purity and just the, the, the word and the prophecies that relate today. And man, when that starts to happen with any organization, with any church body, that it's going to begin to dry up. It will. One of the most exciting things that I see around this church is the awareness that, behold, I come quickly. That's what Jesus said. 
I'm even hearing people say to one another, Maranatha, Maranatha, see you later, Maranatha, you know. Because we really believe that Jesus could come back during our lifetime. Our children could see it. And if they're saved, they'll go with us. If they're not, then they'll see mom and dad's missing. And if that isn't sobering, nothing else will be to you. To think your children will miss out on the rapture. I drive my kids crazy about that. You know? Hey, the Lord could come back. Dad, I know that. You taught us that all our life. I know, but it could come back tonight. You know, Jesus dealt with this whole idea of this absence of learning the Bible or learning the scriptures. If there's three places that I dug up in the New Testament where Jesus would say, Matthew 21, 16, yes, and have you never read? Matthew 21, verse 42, Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, etc. Then in Mark chapter 2, he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? Haven't you read? Haven't you read? Haven't you read? See, the re- and I, again, my heart rejoices. I am just so proud of this that here at Calvary Chapel, South Jersey, I see you bringing in your Bibles. I see you opening them. I see you turning pages. I hear some of you people are doing the one year. I, I, that, that's, that's all I need as a pastor is to know the sheep are in in the scriptures and reading your Bibles. You're not just waiting for just a word from Harrow on a Sunday or a Wednesday, but you're checking out everything I say when you go home. Or if you're missing it, you can't get here on a Sunday. I know you're listening to us on that computer thing and just I know you guys are solid with that. But there is the in this generation, there is such such a lack of a desire in, in, uh, for the word of God. In, in the minor prophet, I think it's Hosea, forgive me, I just came to my mind. I don't, but it says that in the last days there would be a, a famine for the word. Not a famine, not a lack of a Bible in hand, but a lack of desire. The pe- people won't even want the word anymore. That kind of famine. You know, um, I, I have a, a someone I, I know his name was Ken Ortiz. He's a pastor out, out in the Midwest, and uh, uh, he was a Calvary Chapel pastor for years, and his church grew up to about uh, 400, uh, 500 people, maybe larger, I don't know. But all of a sudden, we all heard that Ken went uh, into the emergent movement, and basically that's where you bring in TVs and you bring in cameras and you just you kind of make it um, m- a millennial. You, you, you want to become relative to the people out there. And, uh, and his, his church doubled in size. But he came to a pastor's conference. And um, he, he came there for a couple of reasons. To, number one, to ask for forgiveness. And I was shocked. And he says, what happened to him? He, he and his assistant pastor was going th- uh, through the campus. And his assistant pastor said to him, yo, Ken, do you notice nobody brings their Bibles anymore? And Ken, without thinking, goes, they don't need to. And it just dawned on him. It's because we entertain anymore. We're not, we're not disciples. 
And, it, and he went into a fast and started seeking God and went and talked to Chuck about it and got rid of all the gadgets, got rid of all the cameras and went back to verse by verse teaching through the Bible. His church that was doubled in size went back to the original 900 sheep. And he says he's never felt more, more content to be their shepherd. We have to keep the Bible the main thing. Amen, guys? Number five, a, a, a religious system like this um, always demands something from its people. And, um, or there will be that attempt just to change the scriptures if it has to. I think of what Jesus said, uh, you know, you, to honor your mother and father. But you say, if you just say Corbin, see, they changed the whole scriptures. Corbin meant, I dedicated these things to God and I no longer have to honor my mother or my father. And that's exactly what this stuff kind of produces. Uh, it demands a loyalty from people. I don't want you to be loyal to me. I've heard that so many times. Oh, they're not loyal to me. They're not loyal. You know, don't, I don't want you to be loyal to me. You to be loyal to our Lord and Savior. I'll be blessed if you are. Man, I'll reap the benefits. Trust me. When you're loyal to him and you're following him and you're not loyal to a church or an organization, be loyal to Jesus and then the church will be blessed. And pastors will be blessed. See this whole thing in closing, um, Greg, if you'll start making your way out here. You know, this thing, when Jesus said in 22, verse 22, he answered and he says, have faith in God. He's talking about having personal faith in God. You know? You know, having a personal relationship with the Lord. Studying the word and knowing his promises and putting your faith in them, in those promises. That you can look at any circumstance in life and even if it seems to be a monster or a mountain, you can say, you know what? Because of the fruit of my life, I'm not just this tree with leaves. I can say to a mountain, be gone out of my life. These difficult circumstances or situations we go through, the reason why Christians don't overcome the mountain or remove mountains is because they're nothing but a tree with leaves. There's no depth. Their roots dried up. They have no fruit in their life. See, a fruitful Christian will look at a situation in his life and he's not going to feel like he's got to bury himself. He's going to say, you know what? Step aside, man. I'm moving on for the Lord. That's why Jesus follows up on the heels of what he said about the fig tree. For I say, to, you can say to this mountain, be removed, be cast in the sea, and does, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes these, uh, that those things that he say will be done, and he will have whatever he asks. Therefore, I say to you that whatever you ask when you pray, believe you'll receive them, and you will receive them. What's he talking about? Why? It's because you're not just, we're not a system that just has leaves. You know, we're a system that believes that Jesus is the head. And he, and he loves us individually and he loves us collectively. And he's taught us we're going to go through some difficult situations. But that's okay because we have patience and long-suffering and a gentleness. And we go look at a mountain and go, you know what? Not today. Get aside. And I can believe that God is going to do that for me in my life. Because I have the fruit, not just leaves. What are you today? 
I don't want to be just a tree with just leaves. I don't want my church to be a tree with just leaves. I want us to be fruit, real fruit. Amen, guys? Just to lighten up the mood a little bit. He doesn't want fake fruit either. My in-laws, my dad and mom, you know, in-law, they used to always have this bowl of fake fruit. They did that back then. I don't know. Just, you looked in and you went, man, it looks like wax, mom. Come on. you know. But my daughter, Jen, she was only about two or two, and she crawled up on the top. I heard her start to cry, ran into the kitchen. There she is trying to eat that fake fruit. <laughs> Now, you know that song, and maybe I should have asked Greg to dig it up, but I want to be a tree by the living water, by the streams of living water. That's what we need to be. Amen, guys? Let's stand together. I love you guys so much. You're so easy to teach to. Let's worship. song we could ever sing and worthy of all the praise we could ever bring worthy of every breath we could ever breathe we live for you Jesus name above every other name Jesus, the only one who could ever save. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. We live for you. And holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for your word and and thank you for all that you have invested in our lives. And Lord, like that tree planted by your, your river, a river of living water where our roots can grow deep and bring up that, that which would quench the thirst, God. We just want to Thank you for all that, Lord. And again, we, especially as we approach these days, God, a Christmas season. And I just pray, Father, that our lights would so shine, that we would be attractive, that we would be able to not just look like we have leaves, but that there would be fruit where people can come and pick from and to, and to eat of, Lord. And maybe they'll discover what we've discovered a lot of years ago. How much you love us. And the reason why you came.
I just pray, Father, that the word we've read today and elaborated on, Lord, that it will take up its place in our hearts and never leave. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Let's worship.